Hello, ASQ readers and bloggers. My name is Amy Ding Zhao. I'm a doctoral student at INSEAD and part of the organizing committee for the ASQ blog. This is a new installment of our ASQ podcast series. Today, I'm interviewing one of the authors, Ethan Mollick, about their forthcoming ASQ article in a June issue, Activist Choice Homophily and the Crowdfunding of Female Founders. Unfortunately, the other author, Jason Greenberg, cannot join us live today, but his comments will be incorporated in the written script of the interview. Ethan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. Um, it would be great that if we can start by you telling me a little bit about the background. How did the um, idea come into place and what motivates you to undertake this project? So actually, this started with as much an empirical puzzle as anything else. Um, so I've been doing work on crowdfunding for a while, and uh, Jason and I have been talking about some data. And there had been a kind of a repeated finding that women were outperforming men in crowdfunding. And that's weird, because women are um, unfortunately discriminated against in basically every way of raising funds in, um, for startups. So women actually have a very low rate of venture capital. So women make about 38% of business owners in the United States, depending on how you calculate it. They make up about 3% mm -hmm. of VC recipients, right? So shockingly low numbers. But, and same kind of bias has been found in bank loans and angel investing. So this was a really sort of uh, uh, shocking phenomenon that women were actually outperforming men. And we wanted to figure out why that was the case. Mm -hmm. And so we started kind of looking into this puzzle and we found something weird, which was that we thought the reason why women would do better than men was because unlike other forms of fundraising, which mm -hmm. tend to be male-dominated, there are quite a few women who fund projects on oh. Kickstarter, right? So we thought that in areas like fashion or children's book publishing, where there were more women than men doing funding, mm -hmm. that's why women would be succeeding, because women would be helping each other out. What we found was the opposite, that women were actually succeeding where there were the least women. So in technology and video games, where like 20% of the funders came from were female, mm -hmm. women were actually outperforming men by the highest margin. So that was a really interesting sort of empirical puzzle, oh. uh, and that sort of didn't comport well with theory. Uh, so we wanted to try and figure out why, and that's how we sort of started this exploration. Oh, great. So that explains why you introduced the concept of activist choice homophily. It's because of the empirical pattern that didn't really go well with the existing theories. So could you elaborate a little bit on that concept? Yeah, so homophily is, is you know, the, one of the oldest and sort of you know, most grounded sociological approaches, right? And there's other words for it in other, in economics and in, in psychology, but the idea that, you know, as Aristotle said, birds of feather flock together, right? People like people who look like themselves. And so one of the things that was interesting about homophily as it's theorized is it's very dyadic, right? So my attraction to you is based on sort of self-regard, right? So the more you are like me, the more I will like you, or the more we overlap in traits, but sciatic, right? I'm spotting you. And which is kind of interesting when you think about it, because it's not like we don't have outside reference, right? So part of what activist choice homophily says is it says that we, when we look at someone else, we're not just considering them, we're also considering shared group membership, and that that's influencing the degree to which we see homophily there. And that makes kind of complete sense when you think about it, right? So I meet other Americans every day, mm -hmm. but there's not a sort of shared disinterest or shared, you know, shared sense of, uh, of discrimination that would force me to believe that I should 
be extra nice to other Americans as opposed to other people, right? So it, the idea is that the referent group matters. It's not just a dyadic relationship. Uh, and I think that that ends up being a really interesting point that sort of unlocks a lot of interesting angles on how to think about homophily. Great. And in this paper, you employed a mixed method using both lab experiments and large-scale quantitative analysis with real data. Um, so what motivates you with that decision? So increasingly, so first of all, you know, Jason's not here, but I give him credit. I mean, he's done a lot of the, the you know, he and I really work together on this set of stuff. Uh, I've been increasingly doing mixed method stuff. I know Jason has too. Um, I mean, I think that there's a few reasons for it. One is if the, we're under increasing pressure to show both mechanism in our work, right, and impact. And it's hard to show both those things in one place, right? So there's a real-world phenomenon that made us interested in this. So we wanted to be able to see that this reflects in the real world, but you can't get mechanisms very easily even out of sort of these longitudinal field data unless you're very kind of careful. So the lab lets us get at the mechanism, and then we could see if that mechanism is what explains patterns in the real world. Um, so it, it, we ended up running many, many experiments to make, you know, and there's a lot of, there, there are experiments that took a huge amount of time and are just footnotes now in this paper. Um, but, we, you know, it, it was a really interesting process to try and nail this down with mixed methods. Yeah, but you guys are both increasingly using mixed method. Um, and you went through the whole process of, like, writing about it and going through the R&R. Do you see any, like, challenges and, like, things that you want to mention in that process about mixed method studies? Yeah, so I, I you know, without seeming too kind of pedantic, although I guess I'm an academic, so that's what we do. Um, the, the mixed methods are, are risky in some ways because what happens is is that no one is comfortable with all methods. So you have reviewers, and we had great reviewers in this paper, So you know, and our editor was terrific. So this is not a criticism there, but just in general, mixed methods. Part of the problem is that you have to make everybody happy with every method, right? Mm -hmm. So what you'd hope is a mixed method paper is about accumulation of evidence in some ways, right? It's hard to get, for this paper we happen to, you know, have some pretty solid results everywhere, but a lot of cases you're sort of circling around a point or eliminating alternatives, mm -hmm. and as a result, you know, not, you know, you're using a bunch of results that are open to sort of interpretation or discussion, so you'd hope that you'd get more credit for doing mixed methods and having a lot of answers that are all sort of pointing in the same direction, but instead you need to make sure you've really nailed each part of the mixed methods, mm -hmm. right? And reviewers might know experiments, but not, might not know, you know, large-scale matching approaches, right? So it ends up being, uh, it can be difficult to navigate, but again, um, our, you know, our editor was terrific on this, and it was very kind of a helpful process to get through it. But, you know, I, I would say the, the mixed approaches are often more, more difficult for that reason. But do you see a trend of people embracing it more and more? I think so. I think especially for those of us who do, you know, who are not sort of maybe not economists or published econ journals, right, we're still being touched by the identification revolution on one end, by experiments on the other. So if you're doing sort of this economic sociology work um, or entrepreneurship work or other, you know, this, this other sort of work like that, I think that the way you maintain the ability to do identification and kind of get clean results and still talk about significance, I think these mixed methods are increasingly going to be the way to go. I also think the truth is we're entering a world where we'll be drowning in data pretty soon. So just sort of showing correlations and stuff is not going to be enough. So I think we need to, you know, train up in these kind of approaches. Great. Um, so the, I'm interested also in the real data part of the paper. Um, so the Kickstarter data you used seem to be a really rich data set. And apparently you have devoted a lot of time and energy in putting it together and cleaning it. 
And I feel like the digital era has provided us researchers with all this access to information and data, potential data. And so what do you see as the challenges and opportunities of using these large-scale, very detailed and web-scribing data? Uh, do you have any suggestions to the aspiring scholars? Yeah, so I, I think I think we're on the cusp of some interesting stuff, right? So. I'm just starting to play around with machine learning myself, right? The uh, number of big data sets you get access to is increasing sort of on a regular basis. I mean, I kind of ask the question mentally, like, does Facebook already know the answer to any of the things I'm checking? And if they do, do I really, you know, like, if Facebook could push a button and tell you for the one billion people on Facebook, it turns out this is how you make friends, this is how relationships work, they can answer those questions, right? So we need to make sure, so this, in some ways, it's both a response to that we need more practical theory that we can do that you know has results right to guide this set of stuff but also I think we have an obligation to sort of think about these methods and think about what what they mean um, and I, I'm a big fan of data sets that are exciting that you can actually understand really well so I've like back 65 Kickstarter projects like you're, you you can't see it because you're listening to a podcast but uh, some of my you know I've got Kickstarter stuff all over my desk of like fun things that I've uh, I've got on Kickstarter so like before that, I studied video games, and I collected my own survey data. So I, I think that there's a sense of, like, making sure you know what your data set is, building up a rich data set that you can ask lots of questions. I'm a big survey person, so that's been a very helpful kind of approach to use also. Um, and so I think collecting a unique data set no one else has and getting up to speed in those methods and figuring out how you can ask theoretical questions that are not necessarily you know, un, unattached to data but help guide interesting conversations about mechanisms is important. So the crowdfunding platforms represent an example of new contacts we see today. In your experience, how are these new contacts perceived in the publishing process in our field? Yeah, so I like weird data sets a lot. Um, and I think there's advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the advantage is it's intriguing and hopefully relevant, right? Like, not that, you know, 17th century bridge building isn't important also, but like it's nice, to, or you know, the patent database or anything else, but like it's nice to have something that no one else has, mm -hmm. gives you an advantage, makes your work more interesting. There's a weird factor in publishing I've seen though, which is that like having a really interesting data set can give you sort of points that count towards your R getting a first round R&R because &R, people are kind of excited to see more about the data, but actually can hurt you later on because it, it, can, you know, make people intrigued by your context, but then disappointed if you can't deliver enough interesting results, right? So, you know, getting caught up in the sort of novelty of the context can actually end up slowing you down because you get, you get more first rounds and less sort of second and third round kind of things because you end up with reviewers who might be interested in the context but not in the work. Mm. Um, you know, the good thing about, about the crowdfunding stuff is I'm lucky enough to be the, uh, the throwaway site, right? That's like the goal of every sort of early stage Scholars, like, you you get the throwaway site. People, when people dismiss a field out of hand, they cite you, you know. Also, you can raise money through crowdfunding, Moloch 2012. So um, so it's nice to be in a field where, like, I have, you know, I, I think there's some validity in it. Um, but I, I, I like intriguing data. Again, I just, I, I know this doesn't work for everyone. For me, working in data that I care about, right, and that I know really well, like, it can be depressing, too. So I was telling you earlier that I did some stuff on video games and then involved um, using this giant database of every PC game ever made. And there's like 5,000 or 6,000 entries I was working with. And I realized I'd played enough of them that I could hand-check the data set 
uh, and I realized, like, oh, wow, I've played too many games in my life, right? But, like, there's a sense, like, if you know the data well, then patterns that other people wouldn't get make sense to you. Like, oh, oh why, why is this thing showing up strangely, right? Oh, I understand the data really well. So I think weird contexts work really well. Novel things work well if they're relevant and if you know a lot about them. So after completing this project, uh, did your other work also evolve in some certain ways that, you know, inspired by the findings and experience in the study? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, first of all, again, um, you know, there's, there's, I think there's, you know, my co-authors also doing work on this set of stuff, but I, I'm, I remain really interested in this, in this gender uh, and disadvantage piece in general, right? So I study entrepreneurship, there's systematic biases against many different classes of individuals based on socio-demographic, geographic, all kinds of other kinds of uh, characteristics, human capital. And if you think about it, right, if entrepreneurship is the engine for innovation and the engine for, uh, for you know, economic uplift and economic growth as a society, then the fact that we're leaving people behind who would otherwise be good at doing this is really tragic. So I'm involved in a bunch of projects trying to think about why these causes are happening and, and so focus on that phenomenon. Um, I'm, you know, I've done a bunch of crowdfunding work, but crowdfunding is interesting just because it's not left-censored. Right? So crowdfunding is cool in and of itself, but as a data set, it's a really cool data set because it isn't left-censored. Right? I can watch failures at a very early stage, and now I've surveyed 50,000 crowdfunding projects and uh, 400,000 people. So I have this really rich data set I'm now working with on this set of stuff, um, trying to get even deeper. Um, last but not least, um, I'm very curious about your collaboration on this paper. Uh, could you share with us a little bit of when you decided to engage in this joint project and how did you work as a team throughout the process? So uh, Jason and I were in grad school together, right? So, this, so we've got that sort of natural connection. Uh, and I, 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 I don't remember the exact words. I think, you know, I think I wanted to approach him about these patterns. So um, so this was the mo this was an incredibly even lift on these sets of things, right? So we both worked really hard on this stuff, and I've had papers where the theory building was very divided from the empirics, right, or you know, or vice versa. But this was a much more sort of blended effort. Uh, it helped that we went to grad school together, so we knew some of the same literature and some of the same people. It helped that um, you know I think. Uh, Jason taught me some some empirical techniques. I think uh, he probably took the lead on the large data set stuff, and then I had a, a lot of. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with a couple people here, like Nancy Rothbard and Sagal Brasad, and people like that who um, who helped teach me sort of some of the experimental techniques that I hadn't learned. Right, so I maybe took a little bit more lead on that, but we both learned a lot of stuff and then taught each other. So this was like a really ideal collaboration. Uh, but of course, you say that after the fact once it's published. So we're selecting a dependent variable, right? It's a great pleasure to have you for this ASQ podcast, and thank you very much again for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for letting me talk to you guys. Thank you. To the ASQ blog community, thanks again for listening. Ethan and Jason's Activist Choice Homophily article we discussed today will be featured in the June issue of ASQ and is already available online. The next installment of our ASQ podcast series will be coming out in August 2017 when the September issue of ASQ is published. So stay tuned on the blog. Thanks.